This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. When the story of war is being written, very often its impact on the civilians left to pick up the pieces can be left out. Rarely are the deeds of hospital workers commemorated in the same way as the heroics of soldiers. These people were dedicated to saving the lives of combatants and innocent bystanders alike in unforgiving and dangerous circumstances. They deserve to have their story told, and one entry in the Bureau of Military History does just that. It is a statement made by a nun who wished to remain anonymous. She worked as a nurse in the Matter Hospital between 1916 and 1917. While her identity is lost, her words make an important record of the bloodshed and suffering that was an unavoidable consequence of the Rising and the following years. It should be noted that this podcast contains graphic descriptions of injuries and listener discretion is advised. The mystery nurse seems to have been familiar with the Republican leaders before the Rising occurred, suggesting she came from a nationalist background or at least had sympathies for the cause. A short time before the Rising, Tom Clark came into the hospital with a bullet wound in his arm. We never heard how he got the wound, but it possibly happened during drilling of the volunteers. Dr D. Farnan removed the bullet. I cannot remember how long he stayed here and I cannot find the entry in the register, which is compiled of the charts. It is possible that Mr Farnan, who was a strong nationalist, thought it was advisable to remove the chart in case it might lead to trouble for Tom, whom he knew to be Fenian. The wound healed and there were no complications. When the fighting in Easter week broke out, the basic facilities in the hospital were placed under unprecedented stress. During Easter week, Mr Alexander Blaney, surgeon, was on duty in the hospital. He never left it that whole week. He was operating day and night. There was neither gas nor electricity and he had to operate by the light of candles brought from the sacristy. There was no sterilisation of instruments or dressings and there was no boiling water at hand. Yet, there was no case of sepsis during any of the operations. We were instructed that patients with abdominal wounds should be brought straight to the theatre without waiting to remove any clothes except the shoes and stockings. The statement goes into further detail, revealing the harrowing cases the hospital staff were dealing with. Tuesday was the first day that any of the wounded were brought. One of the badly wounded, Margaret Nolan, who was a forewoman in Jacob's factory, died that day. As did James Kelly, a schoolboy who was shot through the skull. Another schoolboy, John Healy, age 14, whose brain was hanging all over his forehead when he was brought in, died after two days. One volunteer, Patrick McRae, was brought in on Wednesday. Almost immediately, a G-man called McIntyre came into the hospital. He identified McRae and took up his position on the corridor outside the ward to keep him under observation. The students made various suggestions for dealing with McIntyre, including chloroforming him. In spite of McIntyre's vigilance, McRae managed to get away safely. While McIntyre was in the pantry having his dinner, one of the sisters got the key leading from the pathological department to the street. She brought McRae along the corridor, through the mortuary, to the exit door, let him out and locked the door behind him. The whole thing did not take five minutes and the sister replaced the key in its lock without having been missed. As the week wore on, the fighting worsened. Fewer of the injured brought into the hospital were surviving. The majority of these were volunteers, although many had managed to return to civilian dress. On Wednesday, the number of wounded increased, 21 being detained. Two of them were already dead when brought in and six died in the course of the day. 
21 wounded were detained for treatment on Thursday. Seven of them died within a week and another on the 14th of May. Following the rising, the hospital returned to normal and the next brush with the nationalist movement occurred in 1917 when Thomas Ashe, a leading nationalist figure, was in the end stages of a hunger strike. He had been force-fed violently, which led to his death. We were notified early in the day by Mountjoy authorities that they wanted us to take a prisoner who was on hunger strike. He was brought in an ambulance and I'll never forget the kindness of the ambulance men and the way they lifted him into the bed prepared for him in one of the small wards. About 10 o'clock that night, a great change came over him and we knew he was dying. He had coronary thrombosis. I can't say whether he had this condition before he was forcibly fed or not. He was unconscious only for a short time before his death, which took place at about 10.30. This incident led to a further galvanising in support for the Republican movement and increased volunteer recruitment. When the War of Independence finally broke out in 1919, the Matter Hospital was once again drawn into the fray. We were raided here by the Black and Tans on various occasions. One evening they came to the hospital and they went to the reception room. They were searching under the couches and in every corner for IRA. There was a parrot in a cage in the room, which was usually covered at night with a cloth. When it was disturbed by the light and the noise, it gave a dreadful shriek and all the Black and Tans threw themselves on the floor thinking it was a signal for attack. Everyone in the place thought it was a huge joke and the Black and Tans were shamefaced. This statement tells the story of the Rising and subsequent years through the eyes of an anonymous non-combatant who nonetheless was caught up in the destruction and misery the city experienced on all sides. Her words pay tribute to the tireless work of Dublin's civilian nurses and doctors. For more on this nameless witness and other less well-known stories from this interesting period in Irish history, visit www.storiesfrom1916.com. Thanks for listening.